0: A temptation amongst some politicians to just tell these workers who have been dealing with the pains of, of automation, of technological displacement, just telling them, oh, we're just going to bring your jobs back, rather than telling them, we're going to help you, we're going to help you land on your feet, and we're going to help you adapt to the new economy.
1: And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies, and strategies that can beat authoritarian populist like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. Listen, I I just want to start with a simple warning today. Around the 100-day mark, there were all of these pieces concluding that Trump is no longer a danger, but after the first 15, 20 chaotic days, he'd been reined in by professionals. He had moderated, he had toned down his language. He hadn't actually gone on a full-scale attack against American institutions yet. Well, and then he fired James Comey, the director of the FBI, It emerged that he had been trying to obstruct his work all along. We found out all of these different worrying pieces at that moment. And so all I want to say is that four years are very long and we shouldn't jump to conclusions. What we know is that we have a president with deeply authoritarian instincts who is slowly spreading the poison of his ideas and his actions through the system. There's some good signs about how we're resisting him, about how market institutions are resisting him. But let's not let every period of 30 days or 50 days of calm make us jump to the conclusion that all of those people who were warning about its dangers were exaggerating all along. I'm delighted to have Catherine Rampal on the podcast today. Catherine probably needs a little introduction, a nationally syndicated columnist for the Washington Post. She writes about economics and so much more uh, twice a week uh, in the paper, as well as on her blog uh, Rumpage. Um, Catherine, um, a lot of people are arguing that Trump's success had nothing to do with the economy. Um, and there's some good reasons to think that it didn't. There's no very clear correlation between... People's income and support for Donald Trump. So, what do you make of these arguments? Do you think that people who focus on economic explanations uh, for Trump's success are just sort of looking in the wrong place?
0: I I think that the question has often been framed as is Trump's ascendance due to dissatisfaction with the economy or racism or or something approximating racism? And I think that that's a false dichotomy. Basically, yep. there actually is a lot of data to suggest that um, economic um, economic growth has stagnated, uh, incomes have stagnated, and that may lead people to be more um, open at the very least to racial animus, if that makes sense. So, if you look at, for example, productivity growth, and and productivity is basically just a measure of how much stuff we can produce given a a particular set of inputs, uh, both labor and capital. There was a a nice burst of productivity growth in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then it dropped pretty dramatically around 2005 or so. And that's part of the reason why incomes have stagnated, um, uh, median incomes in, in particular. And those kinds of trends um, have, I think, led lots of Americans to say, well, who's to blame, (laughs) right?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's something really interesting here, right? I mean, there's two things that I actually want to draw out in our conversation. So one is this question about secular stagnation and whether we just live in a completely different world from the one we used to be in. I mean, the thing that I often say is that from 1935 to 1960, the living standard of the average American doubled. And from 1960 to 1985, it doubled again. And then since 1985, it's essentially been stagnant. And and surely that means that we live in a really different world. And so one one of the things that I want to talk to you about is sort of, you know, is that just the new world we live in? Is there no way around that? And what kind of implications is that going to have? Um, But before we get there, I I sort of have this other question which comes out of what you were just saying, which is... um, you know it's 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 just sort of weird to me what measures people look at right like they look at oh look actually it's not true that poorer people voted more for Donald Trump so it's nothing to do with the economy but 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 the sort of causal mechanism here seems to me to be a lot more complicated right so so i haven't quite put my finger on it but it seems like if you live in a part of a country that is not done very, very well economically, if you're in the kind of industry that is much more threatened by trade and by automation, um, basically, if you have good reason to be pessimistic about the future, that might make you more open to voting for populists. And, and yet, you know, analysis after analysis after analysis that I see coming out online, not from you, but from many other writers, is saying, oh, look, you know, we've tested income versus support for Trump, and it's not that obvious a correlation, so it's nothing to do with the economy. I mean, why is it that people are looking at it in this kind of way? Am I missing something compelling in this way of looking at it? Or or, or do you think it it really is just a simplistic way of dealing with this issue?
0: I think it's probably the latter. Um, and, And as you point out, there are interrelated forces at work here. Just because um, poor people necessarily didn't vote for Donald Trump doesn't mean that um, the voters who supported Trump are not worried about economic stagnation or not worried about their own incomes falling behind. I mean, there's the, the problem with looking at just a a correlation between income and Trump is that income and support for Trump is that it leaves out whatever the counterfactual people perceive to be. So maybe these are middle-income people, but they see themselves as falling behind their richer neighbors. It's not necessarily that they're poor, um, but they remember a time when their parents, for example, saw their their incomes rise dramatically. And that's the comparison that they're making. They're not saying, look, uh, I'm so lucky because I'm not living in poverty. Actually, to the contrary, if you look at some of these focus groups uh, amongst Trump voters, they're very resentful of the poor because they think the poor are getting a bigger handout than they are. Um, and I think that's also partly driving it, that they they see themselves as... Um, kind of just treading water, living paycheck to paycheck or, or what what have you. They're not necessarily poor and they feel like the government is not looking out for their needs. Like if you look at some of these focus groups that deal with health insurance, for example, you know, there's a lot of hostility towards Obamacare, um, as I'm sure you are aware, sure. Uh, amongst Trump voters, and Trump made that not the centerpiece of repealing Obamacare, not the centerpiece of his campaign, but one of his priorities. You know, he said he was going to do it. I think on day one, um, which obviously has not happened. But then, if you kind of probe further with some of these voters, as as I have as well, you know, more anecdotally. The thing that they hate about Obamacare um, is not this, not Obamacare itself, not the subsidies that they may be receiving. And many of these voters are getting subsidies to buy private insurance um, on the individual market. They're annoyed that they think somebody else is getting a better deal, i.e. somebody else qualifies for Medicaid and they don't. And they think Medicaid is better. So if they're if, if they hate Obamacare, it's not because they think it's too generous they think it's not generous enough for the for people like themselves.
1: And, and there's a sort of weird historical amnesia here, right? That that actually when you look at the rise of authoritarian regimes, it very often is not the very poorest who support the most but precisely uh you know what used to be called the petty bourgeoisie, lower middle class people. And I think the you, what you're saying points to one of the reasons for that, that the people at the very bottom sort of are somewhat grateful for what the state does for them and they don't have, you know, very strong resentment because they can't sort of look down on anybody. I mean, resentment is often, uh, you know, a, a feeling of superiority that isn't adequately... Um, uh, socially recognized, I think, and 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 so what you have of people who are lower middle class, middle class, uh, but struggling, and who've been promised that they were going to have a better life than their parents, uh, they were promised that they, you know, that part of the American dream is not just that you have a nice house in the suburbs, but it's that you know from generation to generation you have a real improvement in the conditions of your life, and they don't see that, and when they blame on the one hand sort of, you know, the government and 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 elites. Uh, who who they think has taken things away from them, but they also blame the people below them who um who they feel superior to and 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 who they feel morally superior to and they don't feel like that moral superiority is adequately um sort of respected by the government.
0: Right, that it's not reflected in policy, that that the undeserving poor and there's been a lot of research about this, as I'm sure you know, the undeserving fo- the undeserving poor who are lazy layabouts are siphoning off their tax dollars. Um
1: so 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 I have a question if this is you know political scientists have a story about the stability of democracy that basically says you know once you've had democratic norms take hold in a certain kind of way once you've had a couple of turnovers of government for free and fair elections and once you live in an affluent society Um, democracy is safe. So, you know, once you're above about $15,000 GDP per capita, you're fine. I've always had the worry, or had the worry for a couple of years, um, that this overlooks the degree to which all of those wealthy societies that we've seen empirically be stable, and there is striking evidence that they are stable, um, have also experienced a real improvement in the living standards in recent memory. And that actually... You know what people need in order to feel that the political system delivers for them may not just be that they have an objectively decent life or they have a decent standard of living, but it may be that they feel that their life keeps getting better. Um, and 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 so I, I I guess my first question to you is um, which of those do you find more plausible? Do you think that support for for democracy is a regime form and 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 an unwillingness to vote for sort of extreme candidates like Donald Trump is driven just by being reasonably affluent or is it driven by this feeling of forward momentum? Um, And then we can talk about what that means today if we really do have secular stagnation.
0: I think it's both. Uh, If you look at the survey data, I think it was Leslie McCall who had done some research on this, uh, uh, you may know, um, about attitudes towards inequality, for example. People don't seem to care that much about rising inequality if they themselves have their living standards rising. So as long as I'm getting a little more money, I don't care if Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or whoever is getting um, an order of magnitude richer. But if I myself see my living standards stagnating or even falling, I become much more resentful of the fact that other people um, are doing better. I become more hostile <laughs> toward the idea of inequality and potentially toward the rich and the system that i believe um you know helps them succeed and not myself. So that kind of data um you know while is it is not definitive to answer your question does suggest that people might be more responsive um toward a, like a more populist message uh an anti-elite message if they themselves are just treading water as opposed to um, as opposed to to moving ahead uh, re- whether it's uh, in a relative to themselves or or relative to their peers so that you know that does suggest that what matters um is not only an absolute level of living standards, but the movement in living standards, both for yourself and and for your children, presumably.
1: And so, you know, I'm I'm not uh, an economist, and 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 I'm really sort of uh, uh, not not as expert in this as you are. I mean, what do you see as the lay of the land in 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 thinking about economics at the moment? about whether we are entering the sort of period of secular stagnation. Because it seems to me that one of the reasons uh, why inequality has risen is, I mean, the global economy and different kinds of technologies. But I think sort of one basic political mechanism behind that is that it's much easier. It goes both ways. As you were saying, um, people become more resentful of inequality if their own living standards are stagnating. But it's also true that the rich are much more willing to support a political system that redistributes a lot if the overall pie is growing so rapidly that they can keep growing their pie while also ensuring that ordinary people keep growing their pie. And once the overall growth of the economy slows, those distributive battles become so much more vicious and so much more difficult. And and, and I think it it leads, political and especially financial elites to sort of leverage their advantage even more in order to make sure that they capture most of the financial gains. In the economy, and that's something we've seen over the last ten years. So, 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 so I want to sort of get a sense from you of, you know, we've seen the stagnation in in productivity levels, um, we've seen slowing economic growth. How worried do we have to be about this? Is it just that this sort of three hundred year period in human history where we've had incredibly rapid economic growth was an aberration, and will now go go back to much slower growth rates that we saw before the industrial revolution and 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 we need to figure out how liberal democracy can survive in this fundamentally changed economic world, um, or, or are we seeing a, a brief blip of twenty or thirty years in which perhaps you know we, we've had a lot of disruption because of technology and we haven't quite figured out how to leverage all of that for real productivity gains yet, um, and actually uh, we're, we're we're on the precipice of, of of more economic growth.
0: So there are sort of two questions to unpack here. One is you know like what's going on with productivity growth? why is it slowed down and the other is what effect does that have on the living standards of normal people yeah and and um, you know there are, the one thing that I haven't mentioned is that productivity growth generally translates into higher sta- living standards right It means if the economy can produce more stuff for less money essentially that allows people in in real terms to uh, to, to be able to buy more um, with their wages. Of course, the productivity gains have not only slowed, but also the share of those gains that are going to the middle class has um, has declined. So there's been sort of this decoupling of what happens to productivity and what happens to wages uh, that started maybe in the late 70s, I believe, like around 1979. So that, so that basically it used to be that every time companies got a little more efficient, just to oversimplify, companies got a little more efficient. Those efficiency gains, the, the, you know, the additional profits that they were able to accrue were um, distributed to the workers. And you've seen this decoupling so that such that um, as the economy got more efficient, uh, as we became more productive, those gains were not translated one for one basically to workers so you not only have the fact that productivity has slowed but even within those gains as you know the the, the distribution of the, of the the shrinking gains basically has gone more towards the rich and 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 less towards uh, the, the middle class and there's there are big debates with uh, amongst economists about both of these questions why is there a productivity slowdown on the one hand and also why even within our productivity gains are fewer of them being given to workers? Um, so, so let's kind of tackle them separately.
1: Yeah, that's really helpful.
0: Okay, so on the question of why has there been a productivity slowdown? We don't, we don't know. Um, there's kind of two camps at this point. There's the um, There's nothing left to invent anymore (laughs) kind of camp i mean i'm oversimplifying but basically the idea is that we we had the computer age um and uh allegedly that started i think in the late 70s and there was there's this uh this famous line about you can see the the computer age everywhere except in the productivity statistics because actually we (laughs) did have a productivity stagnation um around that time and it took a while for the gains of this technological revolution to actually translate into the kinds of business practices that made companies more productive and so one of the theories about why we had this nice burst of productivity growth in the late 90s early 2000s is that finally you had companies um, you know actually taking advantage of, of the internet of computers of Smartphones, eventually, various other things that allowed them to uh, to produce more from their workers, and and that's done. <laughs> right. And 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 even before that, in the period, you know, the, the, the post-war period that you were talking about, um, in which we also had a nice boom in productivity growth and, of course, living standards, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit, um, that uh, washing machines and uh, you know the expansion even of electricity. Um, which was not universal, uh, you know.
1: Um. So let's dig into this particular question for a little while and, and then carry on to the others. Um, because I'm really torn about this, right? I mean, so like, is it true that, um, you know, so, so so we've had the invention of a computer, it took a long while to sort of factor into productivity. Now it has, I mean, interestingly, sort of all of the, you know, Silicon Valley boom of the last 10, 15 years doesn't show up in productivity uh, statistics, you know, perhaps being on, Twitter and Facebook all day long isn't actually making us more productive. What a shocking finding. Um, <laughs> but, 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 you know, this basic underlying question, right, of, of is are all of the big inventions that make us more productive already there? I find that so difficult to get my head around because on the one side it's true that, you know, what's going to be on the scale of bringing electricity to a town? What's going to be on the scale of you know even inventing penicillin and the kind of effect that it had on, uh, on, on 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 you know life expectation? Um, what's going to be on the scale of a telephone? Right? It's, it's it, there were these big inventions that have helped to uh, fuel the economic growth we saw in the post-war era, and and then in turn I would argue the stability of democracy that it's sort of difficult to replicate now. But at the same time, I find sort of these arguments that some people are making that, you know, all of the big inventions are already there. Sort of, what on earth does that mean? I mean, people in 1960 couldn't picture a smartphone. I mean, perhaps there was some technologist, you know, a sci-fi writer who pictured something like that. But it's not like you know, the average economist writing in 1960 would have been like, oh, yes, well, then the early 2000s, you know, we'll get Twitter and that'll have this effect. So, so how, how do you go about knowing whether the inventions that are out there to be invented are already there?
0: Right, you don't. Um, you know, you don't know, by definition, something that hasn't been invented it's, it's, you don't know that it exists or it, it's, it's on the cusp of coming. And actually there are some promising technologies. I don't know if they're going to be on uh, quite on the scale of the advent of electricity or just dis- you know the dispersion of electricity and the industrial revolution and all of that kind of jazz. But you know self-driving cars, the Internet of things, um, the biotech, CRISPR stuff, uh, those kinds of things do seem to hold a lot of promise, and we don't know yet what effect they will have on the economy. Maybe they'll be completely transformative. Maybe there's something that you and I can't conceive of, you know, a la this, you know, the smartphone 1960, that is just on the cusp of being invented. We don't know. Um, there are, however, some things we could do as a, as a country to try to encourage um, more innovation, which would lead to more productivity, and to the extent that we have any any policy levers, we're basically doing the opposite. Unfortunately, you know, like what, what, what do you mean by that? Well, um, Trump wants to cut NIH funding and uh, the National Institutes of Health funding, um, and R and D is a, is a core component for, uh, for promoting this kind of innovation, especially basic research. Uh, so the kinds of research that, uh, if fruitful, if, if it develops something really cool, uh, would apply not only to one company or one industry, but potentially to multiple industries. I mean, those are kind of like the, the really transformative inventions and the kind of, research that the private sector is less likely to do by definition because they're not going to capture all of the gains, right? They, if you're a company, you're not going to do blue sky research these days that is going to benefit your competitors. You're going to do something that's as basically as applied as possible to your own needs, uh, which is totally reasonable.
1: So there's two problems here, right? Like, One is that the benefits of that research aren't uh, sufficiently excludable to capture most of the profit, right? So 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 because patents only last a certain amount of time, and because certain basic technologies aren't sort of fully patentable, um, you know, even if a company discovers in basic research these sort of amazing applications, uh or these amazing things that later have these, these great applications, they can't capture all of the profit from them, right? Um and the other point is probably that actually there's very few companies who can spend that kind of money. That you know, you have to do basic research into a 1,000 really capital-intensive things, um, and only one of them will wind up having huge economic uh, benefits. And so there just aren't any private companies around that have the kind of patient capital to invent, invest in all of those things because who knows, perhaps 50 years from now, it means that we'll be the biggest company in the world. But that's just not how private companies work. Is that right?
0: So, yeah, that's fair enough. And, and the, my point in all of this is saying that that's why – it's, it's important for the public sector to produce some of this research to, to helpfully fund some of this research. And, and I should be clear, R&D is just one component. You know, like I said, we have we have some limited policy levers um, that we could be using to try to improve productivity, if not today, sometime later on. And we are not pursuing them. I mean, I, I, I talked about, um, uh, you know, Some of these, there's nothing left to be invented anymore kinds of ideas, but there are other factors in the economy, such as there's less what's called business dynamism, meaning that there's less churn. There are fewer startups. There are fewer startups and fewer business failures, which seems like it's kind of an obscure in the weeds thing, but actually has profound effects for the economy. And we don't exactly know why this is happening, Um, you know, why there's less entrepreneurship in this metric, for example.
1: But, you know, that's that's, that's a little weird cultural contradiction, uh, just a side observation, that that I don't think anybody's quite picked up on, right? I mean, you would think in terms of, you know, Silicon Valley is a hit TV show, um, you know, when you ask people coming out of college what they want to do, you know, being a startup funder uh you know is 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 one of the sort of top things you know this idea of like the 23 year old ceo who like actually doesn't really have any money but like it's cool to be the ceo because he's like has own little company Like, it's so much part of the culture right now and yet what you're saying is that actually it reflects the reality a lot less than it might have done 30 or 50 years ago that's really fascinating
0: absolutely and that's there's a whole other debate about why that's happening um you know as you mentioned there are all these very glamorous um Examples of, of hotshot entrepreneurs, uh, we've had movies about them, we've had TV shows, but their ranks are actually shrinking. And the modal entrepreneur is probably not Mark Zuckerberg or someone like that. It's probably not someone in Silicon Valley. You know, it's like somebody opening a, a new restaurant or um, or a new dry cleaner or something like that. I mean, th- that's, those are sort of the... Or at least traditionally, have been the typical kinds of startups. Um, but but one potential consequence of the fact that we have fewer startups today than we did in the past is that startups tend to be more productive in their initial years. You know, they they mm. they tend to be more innovative, I should say. Um, and so there's this possibility that part of the one of the contributors to our um, our productivity slowdown is that. We just don't have as much like fresh blood, basically. Um, and why that is, we don't know. But again, you can kind of break down some of the possible reasons for that. And and um, and who who is usually uh, launching these new startups and, and what does that mean we could do to try to increase their numbers. Immigrants, for example, are much more likely to start new companies than native born Americans. And I mentioned before that, that basically the policy agenda that we're pursuing right now as a country is um, antithetical to one that would promote productivity growth and it's not just R&D it's also that we may be shutting the door on immigration um, and that could that could produce fewer startups that could lead to lots of reasons why um, we might not be as innovative as an economy
1: so so this is a really helpful overview right that 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 there are some reasons to fear that this is long-term stagnation but that we're in part compounding it by current public policy You know, one part of which being sort of the the, the policy that Trump is pursuing and another part of it being perhaps not having ambitious enough public policy even before that, right? Like not having the huge attempt at a moonshot in the energy sector or something like that, not having these big public funding R&D initiatives. Um, Perhaps, you know, what we need is much easier financing for, for, for entrepreneurs, not only ones in Silicon Valley that, you know, are pursuing the next unicorn company, um, but for people who want to open restaurants in their uh, communities and so on. Um I, I, I wanna get to another mega economic trend. And in in particular, I want you to explain to me the relation to the mega trend we've been talking about. Right? So we've been talking about look, productivity has stagnated, and you know, as a result, you see um economic stagnation, and that might have explained some of the anger of people who end up voting for Donald Trump and so on. On the other side, the big danger on the horizon seems to be automation. And, you know, according to one poll of economists, 50% of economists think that automation might kill 50% of existing jobs. You referenced, um, you know, self-driving cars. There's over 3 million truck drivers in the United States. Pretty realistically, unless something surprising happens, you know, a vast majority of them are going to lose their jobs within the next decades because it's now very clear that you can have self-driving technology. Um, how do these things fit together? I mean, surely the, the whole fear about automation is that it's such a rapid increase in, in productivity that you no longer need humans to be involved in it. And 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 once you have all of those smart robots and and so on, Productivity rises hugely. Our ability to produce stuff rises, but our ability to to distribute meaningful work and distribute the fruits of that work falls, right? Like isn't that the worry about automation? And how does that go together with a worry about stagnating productivity? I never understand how these two debates fit in with each other, if that makes sense.
0: Uh yes, uh, that's a, a totally reasonable question. So a lot of the jobs that have been displaced by automation, um, you know kind of happened a while ago, (laughs) like if we're talking about declines in manufacturing for manufacturing employment, for example. Um, We're producing more as a country um, in the manufacturing sector. So our output is greater, but we have less employment. That's another way of saying the the manufacturing sector has gotten more productive. Uh, So so in some sectors, we have seen a lot of people displaced by, quote unquote, robots or, or other kinds of technology. A lot of that happened, though, a while ago. And actually, um, there's some research to suggest that the recession accelerated, the Great Recession accelerated some of this, that basically firms had adopted uh, a lot of these technologies, but they were kind of, you know, whether it's, um, uh, you know, online scheduling or, or whatever kinds of things a receptionist or a secretary might do. But they, but it, these kinds of technologies were coexisting alongside the increasingly um, uh, obsoleting human labor. Hmm. And that the Great Recession had kind of a, quote unquote, cleansing effect, which is a really cruel way of, of putting it, I guess. But the idea being that firms finally had enough pressure on them to say, okay, we're going to cut the kinds of workers that we no longer need anymore because they have been displaced by technology. And so, and, 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 and so and that's, and that's a
1: general trend, right? That actually, I mean, that's, that's a consistent finding in economics that pe- that companies don't tend to fire people when the work is no longer needed. They tend to fire people when A, the work is no longer needed, and B, they have to cut costs because they're in a recession. And so you tend to get sort of bunched moments of firing.
0: Yes. Well, if you look at the data, I mean, there are lots of layoffs during recessions. That's one of the the key indicators, the most well-felt, most salient indicators of a recession, there's lots of layoffs. And who's going to get laid off? The people who are least productive. And when times are good when profit margins are fat, you can kind of afford to have people who you, whose skills you don't need as much. But when you have a recession, um, not only is there uh, more pressure on you to cut costs, but also you have an excuse in a way to, to cut workers who maybe you feel as, as the boss you feel are no longer, uh, are no longer necessary, which feels awful to the workers themselves. Um, but, but it's, that's how it works, right? You have this churn. And actually if you look at the productivity numbers, we had a huge increase in productivity in 2010, which would be a, a year after, um, the, the, the recession officially ended, but you know, not, but not as much as it was filled in the labor markets, anyway. And part of the reason why maybe we saw that big increase in productivity is that um, firms basically cut the fat. I mean, it doesn't feel like you're you're the fat when you're in that job, but that's how it works. So the so firms got rid of their their less productive workers, um, and as a result, became more productive on a whole on the whole. But that said, I mean, a lot of these people were cut over the years more slowly as well. Um, And it just became, I think, I think it kind of came to a head more recently. So historically, um, this question of robots taking our jobs has, uh, has been top of mind periodically, like I don't know. It seems, it seems it seems to be very cyclical that there's this fear that there's no longer going to be a need for human labor um, and we're all going to be displaced by robots and, and whatever else. And and there's a panic about it periodically. And you can see it kind of in science fiction. And even, I think, going back to Aristotle, you know, there, there are theories about this. Um, and as I said, it kind of happens slowly over time. And historically, When we've had new technologies that displaced workers, those technologies also created jobs as well, right? I mean, like, there are lots of jobs today that you could not have imagined existing 20 or 30 years ago. Social media consultant, did that job exist, you know, 20 years ago? No. Um, But that's that's a new job that has been created by new technologies. And so there's this creative destruction at work.
1: And and it also sort of shifts the structure of the economy, right? Like one of the stats that I saw recently was just striking is that there's now actually more yoga instructors than there's coal miners in this country, right? And that's not that sort of, I mean, you could have had yoga instructors 200 years ago. You just didn't have... Uh, the access sort of wealth and leisure and all of those things in order to sustain all of those yoga instructors, right? So that's not that sort of the technology to have yoga instructors has now suddenly arisen. I want to get back for a moment to um, how automation plays into this whole overall debate, Um, Because I'm still not sure how to think about the threat of automation. I mean, would automation mean that we're rapidly increasing productivity? And so then really, uh, you know, our ability to produce all of the goods we need in society rapidly shoots up and it just becomes a problem of distribution that's politically difficult to solve. Or or, or, Or is automation in part going to be a process that um, you know, displaces the need for human labor without necessarily increasing our ability to produce necessary goods. All of that much. It it might in sharp our productivity productivity a little bit, but not all of that much.
0: It's all a matter of degree, right? I mean, and and what is being automated? What kinds of uh, jobs or processes? So yes, automation is going to improve productivity and the question is uh how are the gains of of that productivity distributed and are we replacing jobs um at an adequate rate um relative to those that are being displaced by automation i mean there are there are all of these factors that that interplay so i talked about how in the past um there have been these fears of of people's jobs disappearing and no, they're no longer being the need for human labor. Uh, and there have always been cases where there has been painful job losses um, and people kind of never recovered. I mean, I don't know what happened to the the horse and buggy whip Um uh, class of workers, but uh maybe some of them landed on their feet and were able to adapt into new jobs and and, and maybe some of them didn't, but the, the economy got more productive and new jobs were created as old jobs fell. And there's this question of going forward, um, you know, what what's our responsibility as a society to the people who are being displaced um in terms of keeping their living standards adequate, for example. And how can we help them adapt so one is how do we keep them from falling into poverty and the other is you know how do we how do we help them and their children find new ways of supporting themselves and i i would argue that even as we have gotten much richer as an economy which is partly due to becoming more innovative and and being able to produce stuff more cheaply and through trade and 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 other factors um, as i would argue as an economy we have kind of failed on both measures and that's part of the reason. Why you have so much resentment? You know th- there has been, I think, a temptation amongst some politicians, uh, particularly our president, to just tell these kinds of these workers who have been dealing with the pains of uh, of automation, of of technological displacement, uh, and and just telling them, oh, we're just going to bring your jobs back, which obviously is not. An adequate strategy or a realistic promise, rather than telling them, "We're going to help you. We're going to help you land on your feet, and we're going to help you adapt to the new economy." So yes, we know we've gotten richer um, as a country, and the way that you know the, the the Trump approaches to to tell people, "Well, we're going to help you um, enjoy some of the fruits of those gains hmm. by just giving you your job back." The the smarter strategy, the more realistic strategy is to tell people um, sorry, it it sucks, Um, you've been displaced by a a robot or you have been displaced by innovations in a competing industry. I mean, that's the case with coal miners, for example, um, who who have many of whom have lost their jobs as a result of of, um, cheaper natural gas extraction um, and, and telling them we're going to help you find something new or we're going to help you move to somewhere um, that has a more diverse economy so you can land on your feet and get a new job or, or whatever. And and that's not really the approach that we're taking as a country. Um, instead, I think there's this temptation to just say, we're going to turn back the clock uh, to a time when you had a nice job.
1: So this is still assuming that... Um you know, automation is going to displace some jobs and there's going to be this real uh, problem in the short run, Uh, but that is not different from other waves of automation, that new jobs are going to come back, but we are going to have sort of full employment in the end. So so just to conclude, I I want to ask you about, um, you know, the one reason you one might have to think that this moment is going to be different, and I know that people have always thought it's going to be different, right? People in the nineteenth century have said, "Look, you know, we're going to be displaced from the land. We'll be in factories for a while, and then there'll be machines running everything, right?" Um, but 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 the argument that people uh, make for why this moment might be different is that we'll have something approaching general intelligence, right? That that the kind of AI, artificial intelligence, we'll get is going to be so powerful that it will rival and surpass human intelligence in a way that was never true of past generations of machines. Um, what do you make of that argument? Do you find that convincing? Do you think it is possible that this moment is going to be different? Or, or do we just have to assume that it's going to be like past waves because that's the only thing that we can have even have a political reaction to that's realistic?
0: Are you, are you asking me if the singularity is near?
1: Basically, um. yes. <laughs>
0: Look, I think it's very hard to predict the future. We don't know um, what the the pace of technological displacement of human labor is going to look like. Uh, there are people who are very pessimistic and who think, as you said, that we're all going to be replaced by technology and there's going to be nothing left uh, for uh, human ingenuity. Except for maybe being a yoga instructor, and even maybe that, you'll you'll get a, a a robot who does yoga. I don't know. Um, there are people who are very pessimistic. I'm somewhat skeptical of that um, absolute pessimism, given that we have seen it in the past, and it was proven wrong. Um, and there are lots of these episodes of people freaking out, you know the the Luddites, for example. they they were people who I think they destroyed looms or. Or some kind of some kind of um, robot, the the uh, ye old equivalent of the robot that displaced their labor, um, because they thought that it was it was uncool that workers were no longer needed. So we've seen these waves in the past, um, and so I, the, the, this deep pessimism in the past and it has been proven wrong. So I'm I'm skeptical that um, that it'll be that bad. That the singularity is not. <laughs> Um, but that said, even if we're not all replaced by robots, uh, some people are, and we have a responsibility to help those people. And if, even if we find the pace of job, create new job creation does not keep up with, um, with old job destruction, but it's not like complete job destruction. We still have some responsibility to help those people who are going through the growing pains.
1: I I also think that there's sort of like um, a a broader argument here. I mean, for me, it's, you know, my hunch about the world, and I can't prove this, is that if 50% of jobs are just going to go away because of automation, you know, liberal democracy is gone anyway. I, I don't think that there's a way of sustaining this political system if we're going to lose half of the jobs. And so in a way, what we should be doing, which I think you've really helped us think through today is um, how do we deal with this moment of automation and so on if it's not that extreme? If it's going to be really disruptive, if it's going to be a real generational transition, if it will be millions of people who we need to to, to retrain or, or, or provide a decent life for, um, uh, even if they might not have a job because they're not young enough to retrain in the right way, um, how do we manage that transition not on the most pessimistic assumption because if we adopt the most pessimistic assumption, um, We're sort of screwed anyway,
0: right? So the question we should be thinking through as a society is how do we help the people who have been displaced? Not how do we think through this apocalyptic version of we're all going to lose our jobs and there's going to be nothing left for us anyway because then we can't do anything. But we can do something to help the people who are currently struggling. Um, But the the Set of options that we have, of course, is not terribly satisfactory. Uh, you know, there are the universal basic income people who are advocating just cut the cut everybody a check, um, and and tell them we've given up on you, basically, um, which is one approach and will help people. Um, re- restore or maintain their living standards, but of course is going to still breed a lot of resentment because if you talk to people in coal country, for example, they don't—they say they don't want a handout. They say they want their jobs. I mean, a, a lot of Americans derive a strong sense of identity from the work that they do. And I think that there's more stigmatization um, of being on welfare or its equivalent here than in a lot of other developed countries. So the kinds of options we have are are limited and you know there's no magic bullet. Retraining as you mentioned is not always an option.
1: There's no magic bullet but but I think you've really helped us think through this whole issue today um, and, and I certainly come away from this conversation having a much better sense um, both of what public policy can do to address some of those and and what the nature of the challenges is. Um, so, so thank you so much for joining us uh, today Catherine.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Write The Good Fight in giant letters on the top of your roof. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests comments about the show to thegoodfightatnewamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.